Hope all of you are having a wonderful summer. Um, if it's busy, I hope it's fun. This morning, we're going to be reading out of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, chapter 6 is a short text. But before I do that, let's stand and sort of declare our faith uh, as believers. This is what we stand for. This is what is known as the Apostles' Creed. It sort of captures the heart of the Christian message. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me have you continue to stand. Let me read the gospel to us this morning. Calling the twelve to him, Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. These are the words of Jesus. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out, and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Gospel, amen? Go ahead and be seated. You know, you can't read the Gospels uh, very much without noticing Jesus' concern for others. He cared more about them than he did himself. And he expected his followers to be concerned about others as well. Here, he sends out his top team, the 12 apostles, uh, and he sent them to others. He told them to go. One of the reasons I love this story is because if you read anything about the apostles, they weren't all completely together. In fact, on a number of occasions, they proved to be knuckleheads. And, uh, and uh, there were several times Jesus had to do things like say, how long must I put up with you, dur, you know, kind of thing and rebuke them, that sort of thing. Why I love that is because Jesus invites them into the, into the mission of his life to be concerned about the other when they weren't perfect. I love that because that's true for us as well. We get to be a part of this unfolding story of focusing on and helping other people, even when your life and your stuff isn't totally in the right place. And um, somehow... As we do it, it brings wholeness to us. And one gentleman coined the phrase wounded healer. I think that's great. Because in a way, we're wounded ourselves, but we're bringing healing to others. And somehow as we bring healing to others, our own wounds, if we stay open to God, begin to be addressed. And we participate. He tells them to go. Any serious follower of Christ in the 21st century has got to realize that he still expects that of us today. He still wants us to go to consider the other, and to bring them a message from God. 
Now notice, he tells them to go out two by two. He tells them, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. But what he's saying there is, what you really are bringing on this journey is not just a message, but it's you're going together. There's something very, very powerful about this notion of doing stuff together that I think is a little opaque to us, those of us in the modern world, because we, we are so individuated, particularly Americans are so individuated. We don't think of being together with a sense of dependence that those in the ancient world thought about themselves. You know, my father-in-law is now gone to be to heaven. You know, he's such a wonderful guy. Died a few years ago. And I remember going with him to get a car. He was wanting to buy a new car. And I'm of the generation that when we bought a new car, the real question you asked was, who will I be if I drive this car? <laughs> That's an issue of identity. Is it cool? Will it make me cool? <laughs> is it nice? Will it make me, you know, this, what does it make me? Is it, how does it look? What, what kind of image does it create, right? He walks up to the car, really cool car, and he starts kicking the tires. He asks to look under the hood. I'm thinking, what's even under there? You know, he was one of those guys that always played with his cars and messed with stuff. And he, he asked about the air conditioner. How reliable is it? He has all these questions. Well, this is a second-year model. Have they worked the bugs out? See, he was thinking quality. Why? Because he came from a different generation. See, you can't presume that everybody in the world has thought the way you think. The way we think about life, the way we think about others, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our needs, the way we think about our wants, are very often colored by the culture in which we've been born in and the time and history in which we live. And unless you have a little bit of critical thinking, you will do what they call an anachronism. What you do is you project into the past you thinking that everyone thinks like you. That because you think the way you think, everybody in history thought that way. It's called an anachronism. It's anachronistic. In other words, it's out of sync with real time. It doesn't make sense, but we do that all the time. Jesus, when he thinks about oneness, when he talks about going out in twos, there was something very, very powerful here. What he's saying is that, that the whole gospel is linked to the concept of community. Sin is what fragmented us, the human race, I mean. And it, 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 does, it makes us hurt each other. It causes, if you go back to the Genesis narrative and just read those first few chapters, you find out how people begin to hide from each other and they begin to blame each other. Why? Sin does that. And, at the, and, and as you follow that story, one of the high uh, watermarks of the story is they all come to a place called Babel. And their intent of their heart was to disobey God and completely disregard his will. And at that moment, their languages fragment and the, all of them scatter at the very apex of this growth of human strength becomes shattered because of rebellion and sin. The other story is Jesus comes into a broken world. And when he comes into the broken world, all of a sudden, instead of people running from each other, scattering from each other, they start coalescing. They start coming together. And they come together an odd breed. You know, they were in all the same-mindedness. They were in all Republicans. They were in all Democrats. There were some independents in there. They're all coming together on the same campfire. <laughs> and Jesus called them to love each other. 
and to care for each other and to pay, put each other more important than themselves and to serve and to show the, the leader here is not the one who gets fanned and popped with grapes. The leader is the one that serves the rest. And he creates a very different image. And he says to them, these 12 that have been intimately involved with him, you go together. Don't bring anything else except each other. And you go to a home and you stay there. What is he saying? Show them something different. See, Jesus didn't come to have a, an idea, a message that was to pre, be preached to each individual that they were to respond to. Yes, he had that. Yes, the gospel is a message that must be personally responded to. But it's so much more than that. It's Jesus came not to start a new religion. He came of beliefs. He came to foster a brand new community called the church. And, and the start of it, you remember, the great high mark of the start of it was on that great day of Pentecost. And it says that all the people from all the nations had gathered and they started hearing the praises of God in their language, supernaturally. They were all coming together. It was anti Babel. It was reverse Babel. It was God's statement that what sin had fragmented, Jesus would bring together. And that people would begin to care for each other in a way. So when Jesus says go, he wasn't just sending them to preach something. He was sending them so that people could witness their openness to each other and their willingness to serve each other and work together and speak of a new kind of community they were trying to build because Jesus came to the world to start a church. Do you know that he never wrote a book? He puts more weight on the idea that we're called to be together in the Spirit of God. And it was the book that emerged out of that coming. Those writings emerged out of those communities. And this may freak you out a little bit, but they weren't settled on the writings that we have in the New Testament until around 387. That's a long time. How old is America? 200 and what? 230 years old? Imagine this, 2150-ish is the first time that we actually have a document that tells the story clearly that we all agree on for the first time. That's the New Testament. Well, what kept them together? Nobody was quoting texts. You know what kept them together? They shared texts. But what kept them together was we're a community. We belong to each other. We serve one another. Jesus gave his life for one another. We move toward each other. We can't let schisms come between us. They were a community. That's what kept them together. We have let the book replace community. Uh, when he sends them out, notice what he says in verse 7, that he gave them authority over unclean spirits. It's a very interesting thought. In essence, what Jesus was saying is, when we go out together in community and we know how to live with one another and give to one another in such a way, I'm going to say one more thing about it just because I want to. Do you know that in Jesus' mind, when he was thinking about community, he was thinking about a dependent kind of community. So deep, 
that it actually would go ahead of and override family. So he would say, if you love your mom or dad or brother and sister more than me, you're not part of me. When his mom and his brothers showed up one time, he said, they said, your mom and your brothers want you. He said, who are my mothers and brothers and my sisters? It's these who do the will of God. What he was saying was not that you don't love your family. You do. But you're part of a holy communion that's much deeper, that's divine, that precedes, that, that, that the family is just a mirror of, an echo of, a, a, a parable of. You're part of, the, you're part of the body of Christ. And that there should be a connection between us that's deeper than any other connection in the world. I'm watching this series, Falling Skies. Aliens have taken over planet Earth. It, it could happen. And in this movie series, television series, the aliens are connected with each other. They kind of can talk to each other without talking to each other. Which is kind of cool. In a way, we only experience that with the closest friends. Where, you know, when you, when you have somebody that's a, really a best friend, you, what do you say? Oh, it's like they can read my mind. They can kind of know. We just kind of know each other. Or a, a spouse, two, you know, a husband and wife that have been together for many, many years. You, they, you start knowing what the other one's thinking in certain contexts, right? And, and that kind of connection. These writers of these sci-fi movies, in, in some way, you know, and there's a bunch of them. If you, if you watch, if you're a sci-fi person, you know that, that a lot of times this theme reoccurs, that you run into these alien races. They can connect with each other in some deeper way. A lot of times it's malevolent. I mean, it's, it's a bad thing that they're trying to destroy. But there's something in us that would love to know each other, to be known. There's something in the human condition that just wants someone to know us and yet love us. And that we could be not hiding, but ourselves. That is the impulse of the church. That somehow we would actually start moving to each other. This is lost on us, particularly since the Protestant Reformation. You know, it's been lost on us. You know, now we define ourselves by fragmenting from each other and applaud each other for showing our own mind and pulling away from other people. It's a sad. Anyway, when he says to them, he gives them authority over unclean spirit, it's an interesting thought because what he's saying is that when we go out together in community with the gospel, this message of life, we have power over the negative forces that influence people. Think about that. That somehow because of our connection with God, when we enter into space with people, we start sharing with them what, you know, encounters and, and this issue about Jesus Christ, engage with them about Jesus Christ, something starts to impact them that pushes evil away from them. The Bible says people don't believe the gospel because they've been blinded by satanic forces and somehow the world that we live in sort of makes us dull to spirituality. But when we come in with the message of life, somehow it begins to push against that and the influence of those things start to change. It's supernatural. <laughs> I read this. I didn't read it. I saw this guy on CBN. This was years ago. This is like, uh, uh, 1991-ish, somewhere in there. And uh, th this, uh, I don't know if it was Pat Robertson who was interviewing, was on the 700 Club. And they were, they were asking him about his conversion experience. And he said, he was talking about, how he was a rock and roll star. I think it was, he was a guitar player from Kiss, as I recall. I don't remember if that's really true. He was a guitar player in some a pretty famous band at the time. And um, he was talking about how he was, uh, had left the concert in St. Louis 
and had gotten in the big, uh, um, what, what do you call this thing? Limo, thank you. <laughs> if you talked as much as I did, you'd go crazy too. You just wouldn't remember what you're trying to say. So he, he gets in the limo. He, as he's pulling out, these adoring crowds are all in the, on the uh, streets. And so he rolled down his window for a little extra adoration and uh, rolled down the window. And as he's looking out, waving at people, one of the guys right next to the limo that's on the corner leaned toward the window and said, hey, Jesus loves you. He said, it made me so mad. You know, he kind of uttered some words that weren't so kind, and I think he did some sign language. And uh, <laughs> inappropriate. And um, so he, 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 he said that for the next 10 years, as he traveled around the world and even was at home, he said, I would, in the middle of the night, wake up, I'd, I'd have a dream of that guy, or I'd hear him in my head saying, hey, man, Jesus loves you. And he said, and it was about 10 years later, I was kind of in a place that was, I was lo- I just something wasn't right, I was getting depressed. And he said, I, I remember getting out, out of the bed, kneeling on the ground and saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. So, so here's what's so cool about that story. We don't have to own people's responses. We're coming with a message that's supernatural. All we have to do is come into their context, be respectful, be loving, share our lives, and tell them the reason we live. And when we bump into Jesus, the minute we talk about Jesus, there's going to be something that gets on them that's bigger than us trying to convince them. I remember I used to think I had to convince everybody. (laughs) And you should be able to defend your faith and tell them why you believe, but not defend it in the sense of defensiveness. Defend it in the sense of respectfulness. Because you don't have to get all freaked out. I remember talking to one guy one day, and I was getting frustrated because everything I said, he's coming right back at me. Well, that's blah, blah, blah. He's like, and I started feeling myself rise inside. You ever get that feeling? And I feel myself rise inside. And I started, you know, I started talking a little louder. And I'm not kidding. I heard in my heart, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, say, don't do that. When you get done talking, I'm still going to be talking. I love that. You don't have to defend Jesus. That's like a mouse defending a lion or something. What do you have to defend Jesus? You just have to just be a witness. Say, well, man, this is what I'm just telling you. And know that when you're done, God's going to mess with them. Okay, back to our text, Mark 6. They were given this instruction, take nothing for the journey, except the two of you, this community and a staff. No bread, though, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, not, but not an extra tunic. You know what he's saying here? And this is shocking to me. Less shocking now than it was 20 years ago. What he's saying was, is that you don't need a lot to change the world. Something in modern evangelicalism, particularly in the last 150 years, it basically has said you do need a lot to change the world. You need some big talent, TV-sized personality, big hair, Loud voice, right? And, and you need lots of money, lots of money, lots of money. Man, don't put any money in your pot, in your belt, because you got to bring them by the suitcase. Right? Now, I remember back in the 80s, and thank God it's not like this anymore, but I remember back in the 80s when churches that were sort of trying to be in the know with, with, with God's motion and in, in the sense of following the Lord, they were trying to raise millions and millions of dollars for missions. And even though I think money is critical for bringing 
help to the world, primarily when it comes to sending people and maybe helping them be established in places where they can live a life that exemplifies the gospel in that context. So I think that costs money, and I think it's awesome that we do things like, you know, mosquito nets, where we provided uh, for $3 a net, we're providing, you know, keeping a child out of being infected by malaria, um, and $3 to them would take them a couple of years to raise that money. I mean, it's just, so I love that. I love that we do things that try to help that are practical, and money should go to developing world cultures and that kind of thing in the name of Jesus. Right? So don't, don't think I'm against raising money. But there was a time, and still in some places it is, it's reckless money spending. I had friends that would send millions of dollars overseas, and, uh, and you got the idea back then that if you could raise enough money, you would save the world. Crudely stated, unfairly stated, but I will state it anyway. It's money saves, not Jesus. And um, I, I think that what changed my mind about it was that Gail and I first started our ministry in 1980 in a church in Marshfield, Wisconsin, 18,000 people in that little town. I was convinced going into there that we could win that whole town to Jesus. I mean, you know, 18,000 people is not that many. We could win that whole town to Jesus within a year or two. Right? Be done with it and go somewhere else. Because okay? I'm thinking the, the gospel is about a message. Let people hear the message, let them re repent, and then we'll just go. Let them come to church and find out about, you know, how they're supposed to give money to make it work and, and go out and tell other people about Jesus. Very simple. So I remember thinking to myself, especially when I saw my friends sending all that money overseas, you know, if you guys, Marshfield's a mission field, if I could get you to give me just a couple thousand dollars a month, I could hire somebody who could go door to door for a year, we get this whole town reached for Christ in a year. Awesome. Because it took all kinds of time to do stuff in Marshfield. You know, we had just a, we're there for week after week after week after week, month after month. We ended up being there 17 years. And all of that time as we're doing it, we'd move just little inches, you know, a couple inches and a couple inches back and a couple inches. It was just like, come on. And I, just, I, I look at my friends and say, Mission Field, come on. This is worth something. And I actually got mad inside because they wouldn't help me. I never told them. I got mad inside. But then as time went on, and I began to realize, we're building something, a community. And people are learning to relate to each other. And I began to see as they related to each other and loved each other and learned how to work, and learned how to serve, and learned how to react to both applause and rejection, and did it appropriately, and learned how to forgive that it started creating this sticky group of people that didn't come because of some major effort that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in one crusade, although I'm not against crusades. But that's not what happened. It was because of the stickiness of this little group of people. Our church ended up, that little town, the largest evangelical church was about 100 people, and our church grew to about five or 600 people. It was a wonderful community that still goes on. today. I think that... In that experience, I remember thinking to myself, okay, you know what? Sometimes slow grow is good grow. How many of you are glad your babies, I mean, they grow quick, but you're glad they don't. I mean, if you have a baby that's two years old and six foot high, they've got a disease. There are diseases. That you, like rapid growth. How many of you know that cancer is a growth? Fast growth. Not good growth. How many know that some trees, the best trees, 
are the slow grow trees. They're the best wood. You have a fast grow tree, it's soft wood. Not very good. See, sometimes slow growth is the plan. What if the kingdom of God is about us planting communities that slow grow? Not about us going in da 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 in American style. Da, 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 da. And so when I went over in the 80s to some of my friends' places where they were supporting, I went over to one place, and these are horrible stories, and this is not the norm, and it's certainly changed now. Thank the Lord. But I went to one place where one of my friends was sending $25,000 a month to, and I went over there to check out what was happening with that $25,000 a month. That particular group of people, one particular guy in India, a really nice guy, uh, had, was getting $100,000 a month from America. Now, to put that in perspective, the average Indian made about $25 a month. And if you compare it to what average Americans make, the average American in America makes around 50,000. I know a lot of you don't make that much, but a lot of you make a lot more. But it's about 50, is the mean income is 50,000. That means about $4,200, $4,300 a month is equivalent to $25. So in other words, that guy at $100,000 was bringing in, in terms of buying power, $1.7 million a month. A guy with his family doing missions work in India, in that culture, was bringing $1.7 million a month. You know what happens when you have that much money in your hands every month? You spend it like a drunken monkey! <laughs> Reckless spending. I found out that the people that were coming to the meetings were hold, were being paid to come to the meetings. Now, obviously, that's r ridiculous, and that makes you sick, and I get that. But it does speak to an issue. Jesus said, don't bring your money with you. What does that say? It's not about money. It's not about being a big talent. It's about believing. It's like, you remember the bird flu when it came out? Did you ever see any of those movies, contagious movies? It, and they try to find where the contagion starts. It only takes a guy or a girl, you know, touching the meat, getting ingested, and then walking over. And <laughs> all of a sudden, that guy gets it, and then they go, and, they, <laughs> and then the people that are around them get it. Before you know it, everybody's got it. The gospel's like a cold. Isn't it? What Jesus is saying, go out two by two, walk into somebody's house, and go. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need money. Go and cough. This thing's alive. It's alive. <laughs> one more story about that. I, I was uh, standing in the Philippines one day, and I had brought, you know, this was back in the day when you paid for everything. I came in with thousands of dollars, bought everything for this convention. There was about 1,000 people there. We paid for all their food, paid for all their travel, paid for all their lodging. And because um, American dollars go a long way in some of those countries. And I had about $4,000 in my pocket left over. I was just going to give it to the guy. I ended up giving it to the guy that ran the thing. But I'm standing downtown before I give it to him. I'm standing downtown in this um, city in the Philippines, and I, here's this young guy, young pastor, who has a sheet of paper. It was a pledge thing, pledge cards. He was talking to one of his parishioners, and he was saying, he said, yes, he said, he said, we are so excited because the Lord has really, we feel this is time for us to get this, this, this new facility. And 
if we all pull together and just trust him, and, and we'll have to trust him, it, it, we'll, we'll be able to raise the $1,400 we need over the next three years. And, and we'd just love for you to be involved. He's telling this guy, I'm hearing $1,400, three years. He's probably spending weeks organizing this. I'm thinking, I got, I got, I got $1,400, you know, blink, blink. You know, salvation has come unto thee. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, listening, I'm hearing the testimony in my mind as I'm getting my money out. Hearing the testimony. I was just downtown and this American came up to me and just gave me the money that we've been trusting. But, you know, I'm, it's a great testament. Praise God. But wow. And as I'm reaching into my pocket, as God is my witness, I'm reaching into my pocket to get the money. And I hear in my heart, no. And the sense that I had was, I am doing something in this community that your money will not help. In fact, if I give this money, it will stop what God's doing. Let me say something. Money's not the answer. Now, I, when I, some of my missionary friends do not like me telling them this. And, and I understand how they got mad, because I used to get mad. I used to think, you know, you, America's such a rich, America's got so much wealth that they would give me some of the wealth. No, no, you don't need the wealth. You need the cough. And you know what I would do? And I, again, I better get off my soapbox, but one more thing. I used to go, I remember hearing from a lot of these wonderful men. They're wonderful men and women talking about reaching the world. And, they, and when I listened to them talk, they'd always say, we've got to reach the world. We need to raise more money. We've got to reach the world. People's lives in the balance. We've got to reach the world. We've got to give, raise more money. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go with you to the world. Because I was interested in what they said when they got there. Because when we finally paid for them to get to the world, what did they do? What did they talk about? So I went with them several times. And I land in foreign soil. I walk in those meetings with them. And you know what they're saying through translators? We need to reach the world. We need to raise money. I thought, you just say the same thing everywhere you are. What about telling them, you need to learn how to live in this culture with each other? saying yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what it does in your life. And as you begin to follow him in your life, in this context, learning how to work, learning how to grow, learning how to serve, that something is going to create a question in your culture, and people will begin to look at you and say, what is it in you? And you can talk about what God's doing in your context. That, to me, seems like the gospel. All right. Let me give you a, quick more, a couple quick more thoughts also. Mark 6 again. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two. He gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. What's the point there? They stayed where they started. This again evidences the critical value of connecting relationally. The gospel isn't about spreading a message. It's about expanding a community. And when they went to the town and they went to a house, they'd step into that house and they loved each other and they served and they gave themselves to those people. And as they lived out and told why, some of those people entered into the community. 
And when they brought their friends, they saw it and they entered into the community. They stayed there until they saw the patterns. And as they saw the patterns of care and love and giving and serving, not being served, but serving, all of a sudden they saw this is something different. This, isn't, this, is, this is sacrificial. This is something other going on. And when they would connect, when the leaders would leave after they received, that stickiness would continue and they'd go to another city. And Jesus then tells them, but if you're there and they don't receive you, watch in the next verse, he says, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, then just shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. What he's saying is, don't own it. Just go. If you can't connect with them, if they don't get it, don't own it. Just move on. And then he says in verse 12, when they went out, they preached that people should everywhere repent the point is here is not that they yelled meanly at people or judged them for their stupid, right? It means that we have to be honest with people and tell them if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means you're going to have to reassess your whole life. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to, and it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to learn to be selfless. You're going to have to, in fact, Jesus said it this way, take up your cross. You must die to yourself. You know what Christians are selling? Death. But somehow we Americanize it. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Oh, really? I don't know about you, but Jesus ruined my life. I was an amazing sinner, a great selfish person, had my own plan, loved to sin, and didn't feel bad about it. All of a sudden, the little stuff, I start getting bummed out about it, and God's messing with me about stuff and changing the way I think and saying, give me your life for this and crossing. Now, good news is there's life after death, but man, you know as well as I do, everybody's up for the life after death. Nobody wants to die to get the life after death. And we used to tell people, you know, when we first came to Christ, we used to tell people this back in the 60s and the 70s because I was part of the drug culture, you know, so don't tell my kids. I was part of the drug culture, and, you know, we'd smoke pot, you know, whatever we did. And, uh, and, and we would tell people, <laughs> we'd tell, man, Jesus is the best high. There's no high like being high on Jesus. How many some of you are old enough to remember those, those messages, right? Yeah. So, There's no high like being high on Jesus. And I remember a guy came to me who was a total pothead. He came to me and said, you know, I'm hearing about Jesus now. He's better high. I'm going to try it. <laughs> so I think, okay. So I, I, I prayed with him. I said, now, you know, I said, open your heart to Jesus and, you know, and just surrender your life to him, and you'll have a high like you never imagined. So he prayed the prayer of salvation and repenting of his sin and all that kind of When we got done, he looked at him and said, I don't feel nothing. <laughs> we better start telling people the truth. Right? We need to tell them to repent. Listen, if you're going to come to Jesus, you know what? You know what I found is best message for people nowadays? Is when they start scratching at you when you're living your life, and they start asking you about your life. You got to say, man, you don't want in on this. What do you mean? This whole Jesus, you don't want in on this. Well, what do you mean? I'll come at you. What do you mean? Because, man, you have to surrender your whole life. I mean, you won't be in charge anymore. And you've got to follow someone you can't see with your eyes. It's weird. I mean, you'll know he's there, but it's just kind of, and, and, and not only that, I mean, it's true, you'll live a life that makes a difference. True, you'll live a life that makes things matter. It's a, not an easy life. It's a tough life. And you're going to have to do stuff like give money away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to church a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be out of control of your life. 
like people you normally can't stand. It sucks. <laughs> but I love it. Right? Last point. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. What this tells me is they prayed for people. Some people have never been prayed for. Think of that. There's some people in our culture that you see when you're going out in gas stations and malls, airports. There's some people that have never been prayed for. That's why I love doing little arrow prayers. Sometimes when I'm in public places, I like to look at people. <laughs> I think they're cool or weird or something. <laughs> and when I look at them, a lot of times in my heart, I'll say, Lord, I pray for him. I pray that you'll move in his life. I mean, I don't know if he's ever, I just pray you'll move in their lives. I pray that somehow the kingdom will come into their life. I pray for people. Why? Because Paul said, people are blinded. They're oppressed. He said, they, he drove out many demons. They anointed sick people. There's a lot of sick, oppressed people. And Paul said that they, when people are oppressed, they can't see the gospel. But if, but, but if the gospel is preached to people who, are, who have been called, it's the power of God for people that haven't been called. It's foolishness. Well, how does somebody get called? Calvin said, well, God does that before the foundation of the world. He just does it. Creates some people to be damned. Creates some people to be going to heaven. Well, I think Calvin's a moron on that point. Now, he's really smart on a lot of points, but he's a moron on that point. The church historical has never agreed with that. It is just stupid to the 727th power. So for you Calvinists, God bless you. Be warm before. What I think calls people, what Paul suggests, is praying for those who are blind. And that somehow when we pray for them, the oppression pulls back, and they start seeing the gospel. I'll end with this story. I was um, always surprised at how seemingly open I was to the gospel when I was a kid. I was so open to godly things. And uh, the, when I came to Christ, that night I came to Christ and surrendered my life to him, all that happened, nobody preached to me. A friend of mine who had been preached to by a Jesus freak guy, had been preached to by this guy, walked up to me at a, at a dance at a bar. It was, it was, it was, there was a bar was gated off, and the younger kids could be over here, and I was, I was only 15 or 14. And so we were over in the dance part, and he walked up to me, and he looked kind of wide-eyed. I said, what's going on, Tommy? He said, man. I'm thinking about giving my life to Jesus. That's all he said to me. It, it got on me like a chicken on a June bug. And I walked out of there sort of stunned by his statement. Went home, couldn't get it out of my mind. Walked up into my bedroom, 2 o'clock in the morning, Christmas night. And uh, got on my knees, 1970s. Got on my knees, and I said, Jesus, I want to give my life to you. And in that moment, that transformation, I, and, and after I did that, I couldn't understand why everybody wouldn't do that. So easy. I was so, no resistance, no, no, you didn't have to argue with me. You didn't have to convince me. I was just so open. And I remember thinking to myself over the years, man, I just must be an open guy. <laughs> you know, unlike some of you. <laughs> and uh, about 12 years into pastoring in Wisconsin, this 
older lady came up to me. I had known her for years. Her name was Sister Schlinsog, Ruth Schlinsog. And um, she said, Pastor Ed, she said, I didn't want to tell you this because I thought, you know, I didn't know if I could, but I really felt the Lord impressed me that I should tell you this story. I said, what? She said, when you were about eight or nine years old, she said, I went to your father. My father is a physician in a local in a small town near Marshall. And she went to him as the doctor. And she said, I walked into his office and I saw your picture on his desk. And she said, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, she said, pray for him. She said, I prayed for you for years. And I remember it just hit me. That there was a sense of some people have never been prayed for. Some people in our culture have never been prayed for. So here's what I'm telling you. The gospel reading is telling us this morning, go! It's telling us, go together. It's telling us, be simple about it. It's telling us to live well, to be relational, to don't try to own people's reaction, to tell them that there's a cost. They're going to have to be open to change. They're going to have to repent. And it's telling us to pray for people. So, go do that this week. Obey the gospel. Did you just call John Calvin a moron? Did I hear that? <laughs> just on that issue, though. <laughs> well, we have the opportunity now to give money. <laughs> and it's uh, in a really beautiful way, though, out of the community that the Spirit is building here. Um, if you want to prepare, we are really excited about what's happening uh, here as we kind of have a remodel in our children's area. Um, we are next week is our combined services, 9 and 11. The 10 o'clock folks are going to be coming over here. So you're going to have kind of some more friends here with you. Um, so we would love to get a good chunk of that done, knocked out this week. And so if you're able to give towards this project, that would be a beautiful, wonderful thing. Ushers, you can go ahead and, and come with that. And let's pray. Lord, um, we are thankful uh, this church, this community that you've called. Uh, Lord, thank you that you've called us in this unique way to be part of this, uh, this kingdom that messes us up, that changes us, that shakes us up. And Lord, um, here in this context, we choose that we want to be a people who follow you with our whole hearts. Would you shake us up? Would you change us? And Lord, we're thankful that all we need is your grace, that we don't need a bunch of other stuff, but that all we need is you, and that you bind us together and draw us closer to each other. We trust in that as we offer uh, these offerings to you, these humble offerings. We uh, thank you that you bless it and that you multiply it. We trust you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you give, um, just many of you are aware that next week is Pastor David's last week with us. And uh, our, he's our youth pastor, and many of you know just what he means to this community and just what a blessing he has been to us and just can't even get enough words to describe that. So next week, um, since that is his last week, they are going to serve a church in Arizona. Um, we believe we're one holy apostolic church, right? And so he's going to the church in Arizona. And we want to have an opportunity next week at the end of each service to bless he and Kate and just uh, tell them thank you and what they mean to us. So we're going to have a, a small reception at the end of each, both the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service, give you an opportunity to just tell him what he means to this community and, and bless them as they go. Why don't we stand together, lift our voices as we have the opportunity, as this is really about us doing this together. Let's lift our voices and sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Beautiful. Yes. Today, as uh, if, if, you, if you can, if you were able to be there for the move today, help with the move, 1 o'clock at the Tulsa campus. As you go, as always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace.